This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Alex Pearson on Point, and today on the podcast, a Quebec company that was named in an exclusive 10-year federal supplier for Canadian PPE, and yet they have not made one single piece of it. What is going on? Then we'll be speaking to Matthew Fisher about the arrest of a media tycoon and pro-democracy activist in Hong Kong and what that means to the free world. And we'll also finish the show off with a conversation with a university professor and activist in Beirut about the Lebanese prime minister stepping down and what this means for the future of the country as well as its people. All right, it's time now to dig into the headlines where we often find those very juicy nuggets you're not supposed to really see, but you should because they matter. And uh, Blacklock's reporting has uncovered a doozy. And we chatted kind of lightly about this last week, this Quebec company that had been awarded a 10-year sole source contract to make PPE. And then we discovered that not only did they not have a manufacturing plant, they haven't even delivered a mask, nothing. And initially, the dollar amount was much, much, much less. Now we find out $380 million, a sole source contract to produce nothing. Tom Korski is the managing editor of Blacklock Supporting, and you guys are the ones, I think you specifically dug this one up. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, how do I get in on this pandemic piggy bank? It, there it was, Alex, uh, the 11th of March. Remember that date. It's an interesting date. And we presume the managers of AMD Medicom. We're sitting around the office on Airport Road in a suburb of Montreal when the phone rang. That afternoon, at lunchtime, the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. And the phone rang, and Industry Canada was on the line and said, how would you like to be a mask supplier to the government of Canada? <laughs> we presume Medicom said, but we don't have a factory in Canada. One thing leads to another, nine meetings between their lobbyists and the Minister of Industry and his staff, and days later, they walk away with a $382 million contract, to which, as you point out, they have delivered zero masks to date, according to the public health agency, because they don't have a mask factory in Canada to produce made-in-Canada masks. It's unbelievable. Well, it is unbelievable. And then, of course, SNC offered itself up to build this plant. But again, I'd laugh if it weren't so seriously, because we are going to a possible second wave. And we already know that we weren't prepared the first time. And we've been relying on these companies to make us reliant only on us. So you're suggesting to me that for what, almost $400 million, we have now got absolutely zero out of it, and we're not going to have any of this stock or supply available should and when that second wave comes. And the contract was based, from what we understand, the terms of the contract have not been disclosed. The contract was premised on speedy and efficient delivery, quote, unquote, masks shipments were supposed to start in July. These are just ordinary surgical masks that everyone's familiar with. You buy them at the convenience store. Uh, 
and these high-grade N95 masks in August. Nothing happened in July. There was nothing. We wanted to take a picture, actually, of the loading dock to mm. see the, the famous medical. <laughs> nothing. The truck never showed up, uh, Alex. It, th- there was no delivery. A lot of money. Sole source contracts. What does that mean? Why does that drive <laughs> people in Ottawa crazy? Sole source means I got work. I didn't even have to bid. The government didn't even have to open tender so my competitors would get a shot at it and maybe taxpayers would get the best price. They called me. In in this case, they literally called this company out of the blue within hours of a pandemic being declared. Right. And do we know whose riding it is? Is it a nice plush liberal riding? Is it a, which one is it? It is, is, it? A, uh, it is a liberal riding of a first term liberal MP. What we don't know is who owns the company. It's a private company, unlike Lavalin, is not publicly traded. It does not publish annual reports. They have divisions in the United K, uh, United Kingdom, France, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong. Corporate registries are very vague. We're going to find out. Somebody owns this company, and they're enjoying themselves immensely. Yeah, and of course, the reason we had to, you know, give out these contracts, and by the way, the government's very clearly into sole source contracts. It's just they keep getting caught, is because we gave away so much of our stock. And, you know, we weren't as prepared as Patty Haidu and Dr. Tam would, would have liked us to believe. But you also uh, find that the public health agency, through an internal memos, disclosed that it wasn't prepared for the pandemic at all. And in, in fact, it shipped date expired medical items to provinces. So right across this country, um, we had stockpiles going out that were not even up to date. Because they just was... a lot of it had been thrown away in 2019. Alex, they threw away millions when they decided to close warehouses. You know, Parliament created the Public Health Agency as a fire department 16 years ago. This was their job. They had one job, just the one job, not climate change grants, which they approved. They had one job, and it was pandemic preparedness. And instead, they closed three of nine warehouses that held pandemic preparedness supplies. They threw away millions of masks as late as 2019 months before the pandemic broke out. They were so short, as you mentioned, they were uh, admitting in internal memos, they shipped date-expired medical goods to provinces for use by their pandemic heroes, doctors, nurses, and paramedics. And they actually expressed gratitude to Home Depot for donating N95 masks used by construction workers. How sad and infuriating is that? Well, I can tell you, you know, if I'm a frontline health you know, worker or one of those people in long-term care, you, you wonder, you know, was I being set up to fail? I mean, it's not just gross, but, you know, there are real questions to be asked about, you know, uh, did this government, you know, willfully uh, put people at risk because they were trying to, you know, hide the fact that they were prepared and that they were negligent in many ways. I mean, where does it go from here, though? Canadian Medical Association has called it a betrayal. They're from Toronto, as a doctor in Toronto, testified in committee. He said, you betrayed our members. You put our members at risk and their families. It is so bad. The Medical Association has petitioned Parliament for death benefits for the families of doctors, nurses, paramedics, frontline healthcare workers who die in the service of the public in combating this pandemic. Because the fire department threw away the masks, the public health agency. It's just stark and disturbing. 
It is, especially when you go back to those early, early days when all we were told by Patty Heidi was, oh, it's low risk. It's so low risk, Dr. Tan. Don't worry, everything's low risk. We're prepared. We're prepared. Not only did they lie about the low risk, we were never prepared, but they lied about all these other things we're finding out now. And they're just banking on people being very, very, um, you know, uh, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Distracted. Well, distracted, you know sorry, by it, summer and by this that they won't find out. Absolutely. And you know, Alex, it begs for an inquiry. If there's not an inquiry on this, there's something wrong. And I, I can almost guarantee you MPs are so upset by this, justifiably so, that uh, it, it would be surprising if there's not an inquiry that really names names, not one of those fake inquiries. Just name names, get the dates, who failed, who's getting fired. All of that does not help people today. Yeah, well, hopefully they have more luck with it than the Nova Scotia mass shooting that they didn't want to look into either. But uh, unbelievable, Tom. Tom, I appreciate your time on this. Anytime, Alex. That is uh, Tom Gorski, Black Locks Reporting. That's quite a little nugget we've got there. And that is a subscription-based publication absolutely worth every penny because they get some unbelievable stories. Welcome back to the nine o'clock hour. Who is Jimmy Lai and why should we care about his arrest? Well, he's a media tycoon and one of Hong Kong's best known advocates for democracy. And over the weekend, his offices were raided and the tycoon handcuffed and taken away under this new national security law that was recently put in by Beijing. And Lai has been critical of the regime, which infuriates President Xi. And unlike other billionaires who have kind of bowed to these new laws and are laying low, he uses his wealth to push back and fight for democracy, making him one of Beijing's most hated figures. And so what we're seeing now is President Xi flexing his muscle, hoping, I guess, to send a message. Matthew Fisher, longtime foreign correspondent, also now a global news commentator and resident visiting scholar in defense and foreign policy at Massey College, joins us. Good to have you, Matthew. Oh, thank you very much for having me again, Alex. You know, I saw this news story over the last uh, 24 hours, and it's fairly significant. Why? Well, they are certainly ratcheting up, uh, the, they being the Chinese government, uh, ratcheting up their, uh, their game against people who they perceive as in, uh, enemies of the state. And it's quite a dangerous development. What we had before the, the new law was introduced, what, four, five, six weeks ago, they just arrested people in the street, demonstrators, mostly kids, one or two fairly important uh, politicians. Uh, since uh, then, there's been a bit of a pause. Well, uh, uh, Jimmy Lai was one of uh, nine people, at least, that was rounded up. And uh, in this sweep, it was the media, it's hundreds of police entered uh, newsrooms. Uh, he owns the Apple newspaper, hugely popular in Hong Kong and Taiwan. It would be like uh, perhaps the owner of the Toronto Star, the owner of the Toronto Sun, or, or of a, a paper that's uh, like the Vancouver Sun, uh, where uh, you take the owner away, you're really sending a signal if you're a government. And there is this. Also arrested were even guys who just shoot video for TV networks were arrested. And they are being charged as enemies of the state because they are accused of working with an unnamed foreign power. 
that foreign power one would presume is the United States, but it might be Japan or it might be the United Kingdom. Uh, but uh, it, it, it's a real ratcheting up of the game on China's part. It's what was feared when this uh, legislation came in, and uh, it will terrify and worry a lot of the people in Hong Kong. And of course, it will cut off uh, even more the flow of free information. And in the last couple of weeks, Hong Kong still has a fair bit of free information exchanges through the media, but uh, it seems China's determined to close those doors one by one. I mean, this man's got a lot of wealth and a lot of fame, but will that help him? Well, uh, I don't think it will help him. China's put their own billionaires related to the party in prison uh, in China. It was interesting. His company, which is called Next Digital, uh, its stock soared today. And his company has lost hundreds of millions of dollars over the past couple of years, like a lot of media companies have. But the stock soared because people who want freedom in Hong Kong, bought the stock in a show of solidarity. Uh, whether solidarity will be enough against the weight of the Chinese government, I don't know. But of course, the message to the West, another message to Canada, is that we must hold firm against China because they try to intimidate, bully, uh, and incarcerate people. Uh, it fits with many other uh, terrible things they're doing to the Uyghur Muslim minority, to the Tibetans over the last few years, the Gallenfung people, uh, and what they've done to the people in Hong Kong in terms of suppressing their right to protest. Yeah, and look, the, the Five Eye Partners, as you well know, over the weekend issued a joint statement uh, stating, quote, it's gravely concerned over the new law. Well, that's that's great. They're gravely concerned. At what point do they realize, certainly Canada, that this gravely concerned type of language is going to do sweet bugger all. Well, it is doing very little. And Canada has issued over the past six months or years many statements about being seriously concerned, gravely concerned about various things that China's up to. Uh, when will the West be prepared to take collective action on trade or economics or boycotting some kind of Chinese goods, uh, perhaps forming a cartel uh, of food suppliers because China needs us a lot more than we need them in a lot of trade. Uh, we will miss their cheap mini conductor parts and, and the, the cheap televisions and electronic goods they provide us with. But what we provide them with is resources to, to use in their factories and also food for their people. So we do have levers if we choose to use it. But at the same time, so much is going on militarily in the Far East. Things, uh, I'm not saying they've uh, escalated out of control, but there are all kinds of danger signs from China, from the United States, that uh, things are being ratcheted up over there with bombers, with mm -hmm. fighter jets, with warships, with submarines. Uh, and you can get into miscalculations that, that cause uh, grave trouble, uh, suddenly we could find ourselves moving from what has become a cold war to some kind of a hot war right. uh, if somebody just makes a mistake, uh, not even intending to do something malicious.
Yeah, and you write about this extensively in your latest piece. And, and you know, you cite things like uh, Pompeo's visit uh, to Taiwan, which was very significant because um, uh, China will look at that as a thumb in the eye. Um, but again, where does it go between China and the United States? And what do the Five Eye Alliance, you know, allied partners uh, do? Because as you say, it can turn very, very quickly. But there's no question every day, Matthew, there's another headline of China pushing its force. And every single day, um, when we're not acting, not doing anything. I mean, China well, is really kind of calling the shots. It's impossible to even to keep a list of all the things China's up with. Uh, that bloody uh, conflict on its border with the Indians up in the Himalayas, uh, actions against Vietnamese oil rigs in the South China Sea, aggressions against fishermen from Indonesia, from Malaysia, from the Philippines, uh, incursions into Japanese uh, territorial waters uh, and very close to Japanese islands in the East China Sea. There are also problems with South Korea and uh, all kinds of military activities around Taiwan, uh, practicing uh, assaults to take that island. And on the other side, the Americans are sending bomber jets regularly through the South China Sea. They're also sending fighter jets. They've had two aircraft carriers out there. We believe that all of the American Pacific submarine fleet is now at sea and uh, in the Western Pacific. All these things can lead to miscalculations uh, and uh, all this saber rattling uh, can cause us a lot of trouble. Nobody is talking. There are no negotiations taking place right now really between the two sides. I would rather this went the trade route uh, than the war route. I think we all would, but there's not too much sign of this. And Canada, as always, uh, Alex, seems to be an outlier. We're on the sideline. We can't do that much militarily. Yeah. We can do a bit more, certainly, than what we're doing. But there are other ways Canada can participate. And one is to just be with our allies. We speak of multiculturalism. We speak uh, of having all these friends. Well, uh, we're going to lose our friends if we're not willing to do our part. The other intelligence unit, other than the uh, than what you call uh, the Five Eyes, what everybody calls the Five Eyes, is the Quad. And that is for the Pacific. And that belongs to India, Australia, Japan, and the United States. Canada has not applied to join that. Uh, very big question, why Canada has not even considered such a thing. We have, are excluding ourselves from the biggest intelligence grouping in the Pacific, relying on the Five Eyes to do uh, that because we are a member of them. But that's not the be-all and end-all. We should be a member of the Quad too. Yes, well, it takes leadership, and this is definitely not the government to uh, to take that. Up against the uh, wall here, Matthew, I appreciate your insight in this. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. Matthew Fisher joining us, and you can read his latest on this Cold War uh, that we could be or are looking at with China and how he believes it can turn hot very, very quickly. That is now up on our website. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
Well, first there was the explosion, and now Lebanon's being rocked with violent clashes between the citizens and government police. And there's this palpable anger as you watch the images. And this is against uh, the ruling elite who are being blamed, much in part for their chronic mismanagement, if not outright corruption, that they believe caused this explosion and has brought the country to its knees. And over the weekend, an emergency meeting of world leaders was held to discuss international aid and helping the country rebuild. But if that solution does not involve a political, political approach, you know, not, you know, if there's no change, then the country really, in many people's eyes, has no future. I want to bring in Carmen Gaya. She's an associate professor of public administration at the American University of Beirut. Carmen, it is great to have you on a day where um, so much has happened with cabinet ministers resigning and now the prime minister resigning. But before I get into to that side of it, can you just paint a picture as to what we are seeing on the streets and why people are, are, are uprising? Thank you so much for telling the story. We need all the support that we can get and getting the word out there. I'm just going to tell you what happened because you can't make this stuff up. Four days after 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate detonated in the city, we're still pulling out bodies from under the rubble. When citizens went down to protest two days in a row, they tear gassed us, they threw hand grenades, they're shooting, there's pictures all over social media circulating of armed politicians. It wasn't clashes between citizens and the police. This was another attempt to kill more people of us and to silence and stifle the ongoing revolution from October. Uh, we're really, truly, I mean, you can make this up. So this is what's happening and I will leave it for your viewers to just Imagine that the security forces, instead of helping us pull people from under the rubble, there's nobody from government, municipality, nobody on the ground. It's young people, volunteers, my friends, my family going to literally see how many buildings are going to fall down and still pull. There's still people who are missing. Uh, this is traumatizing for Lebanon. You know, the ICRC mm -hmm. has been helping Lebanon identify the fate of 17,000 people that we lost in the civil war in 1975. And we're still counting people gone missing and the government is shooting at protesters. So I'll just leave it at that. It's pretty incredible. And then we wake up to news that cabinet ministers are resigning and then the Lebanese prime minister Hassan Diab has resigned. And, you know, at first, um, you know, that's a wow moment. But is this... Um, is this a blow uh, to Lebanon? Is this um, does this mean that a, a win for Hezbollah, or is this a win for the people? How do you how do we see this, and how should we see this? Yeah, two things in the introduction. I mean, when you were saying, I mean, that people will think that Lebanon is doomed. The people of Lebanon who are saving their friends and families and colleagues from under the rubble should not be doomed forever. The people of Lebanon deserve this trust of the international community. I can't tell you how many platforms are being set up. I'm working on one. Hundreds of people are working on ways to get aid through trusted organizations and institutions. No, we are not doomed for me, the resignation of the cabinet is expected and irrelevant. It's not wow. Uh, the people who appoint and bring government officials and appoint security forces and appoint judges are people who are outside of power. These are the real people. These are the real culprits. And these are the warlords turned politicians after the civil war that we've been warning about. They were the ticking time bomb. I mean, the government, great, they should resign, but it doesn't really change anything because by law, they will stay in charge of the state institutions that are refusing to give out statistics and demographics to aid agencies. Mm -hmm. They're trying to use this to stop aid from coming to the people. I cannot tell you, literally everybody I know is either doing an app to assess needs or is on the floor, you know, today the Kenyan workers are demonstrating because their employers can no longer, can no longer payment. It's not chaos. It's 
this is a disaster. You're in, on a movie set of disaster. So the least they can do is resign, but we want justice. And this resignation does not is very far from justice. Right. And so when you see world leaders like Mr. Macron in France uh, talking about the international aid and the urgency, and that's what they're meeting about. I mean, there's another side of this. There's a political side of this. There's the 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 investigation into this. And, and the, well, the Lebanese government doesn't want a formal investigation, but you cannot help Lebanon rebuild or a, uh, have a prosperous future if there is no independent foreign investigation. Absolutely. But also, you know, unfortunately, we know investigations take decades. So yeah, the political right. verdict is out. They are the culprits. We now want to save whoever of us is still alive by coincidence alive. And I have faith that the Lebanese people deserve aid and that, that they will set up a trustworthy system to receive aid. There's a lot of us that had worked on the Syria crisis. Unfortunately, we have experience in disaster and war. We deserve the attention of the international community. We need to isolate not just the government, because these are people who were appointed six months ago, most of them not known, not there by popular support. It's the parties that put them in power that need to be brought to accountability. And do you have faith that that will happen? I mean, do you believe that the United Nations and the international community have the will to do that? Make sure My that personal professional opinion, because I worked on the Syria crisis, is that unfortunately the magnitude of this, this disaster is unlike Every, anything the world has seen, I mean, there are people are saying it's like 9-11 or Hiroshima, not really, because with our with a global pandemic and, and, and a shitty, sorry, a horrible government, it's not like anywhere else. So the context is different. I have faith in the goodwill of a lot of the international agencies, but I think we need to do this ourselves, put the voice of what we need and how we need it done ourselves. And how can you have that happen? I mean, there's the enormity of the um, aid itself of getting it to the people because it's not going to be rebuilt. Lebanon will not be rebuilt uh, in a year, not even five years, maybe not even 10 years. I mean, it's it's been flattened. Um, and so while you're trying to make sure people are fed and clothed uh, and getting emergency services, uh, you know, and housing, how do you also get that political change that is so absolutely crucial to make sure Lebanon, um, you know, has a prosperous future? We have a very peaceful way to get change. I mean, we have in our constitution, we, we carry out elections over four years. Uh, you know, there are ways to transition power. You know, this, the, the way that the, they are not the system, the way that the political class has been dealing with us is not the system. They've come up, you know, with it's a group of warlords. But there is a way to take over power, to give a chance for new competent faces. But first, we need to stand on our own two feet. And how do you do it? And how do you say, literally, you just go down and try to assess the damage, talk to people, sit behind your laptop, Google how you deal with 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate. I mean, you literally just try to do it because otherwise you feel dead inside. And as for political change, I have faith that it will happen. But until then, and until we get the right people into power and get rid of them, we need to first stand on our own feet and we're not there yet. No, it seems like a very long, um, you know, long, long journey and not uh, not necessarily an unpainful journey. Just before I let you go, Professor, um, as far as, as getting, um, you know, new leadership in, as far as who can help make this happen, you know, uh, pressure, how do you keep Hezbollah and the terror leaders and, and all the corruption out while you go through this process? It, are you confident that that can happen? Of course, I mean, no, of course not, because unfortunately, you know, I'm talking to you now after the disaster and we are a story on the headlines, but we tried it. We've been on the streets since October. I personally tried every way I can to think of ways 
to reform, it's not reformable. There needs to be pressure that these people step down. I don't know. They need to be declared not just a danger to the Lebanese people, but a dangerous to the danger to the world. There's 3,000 ton of explosives sitting sitting on 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 the Mediterranean. Why? Who brought them in? For what purpose? Why must all our lives, not just that of Lebanese nationals, be in their hands? I mean, I don't know how to get. Get out. I don't. I don't know how to solve it myself. But I'll tell you, we don't like competent people who love this country, whether they're nationals or non-nationals. And it's in these people that the media should turn to. Stop putting politicians on TV. Anything you can, you can in a non-violent way participate in helping us topple them. Simply by calling on your leaders not to talk to our leaders. Simply by not bringing them to news channels. I mean, they cannot still get the attention of the world as a first step while we're still picking up dead bodies. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, talk to the people, not the politicians. Well, exactly. Professor, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, we have a large Lebanese population in this country. They are certainly listening and paying very close attention to this. So we'll continue talking to you and getting the perspective on the ground. We much appreciate it. I appreciate it too. Thank you. That is Carmen Geha. She's a, a professor uh, at the American University of Beirut. And we will continue following this. And that is your podcast for today. You can hear On Point live with us. Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson.